0: may have heard the title before my aim was to make a reference to the popular sitcom show the modern family okay now honestly i've heard a lot of funny things about the show but i've never actually seen a single episode so i have to dig up good old wikipedia to get a quick summary ultimately the show is about a family but nothing like the brady bunch all right nothing like seventh heaven do you remember that show anyways So the program depicts a modern family. There's the dad. He's divorced and remarried, and he has a blended family. There's a gay son who has an adopted daughter with his partner. And then there's the daughter who is in a traditional marriage and has three children with her husband. So ladies and gentlemen, this is the modern family. So this is what I'm getting at. We also have a family that we've been observing as we've been going through the book of Genesis. We've seen kind of their issues, their maybe brokenness and their sinfulness of their lives, we see the obvious dysfunctions. I mean, let's take it all the way back, okay? The first two brothers' relationship wasn't all that great. In fact, one brother ended up killing, murdering the other. Ham laughed at the nakedness of his father. Abraham lied about his marriage with Sarah twice. Ishmael persecuted Isaac, his brother. Hagar and Sarah, they just couldn't stand aside of each other. Jacob was all into identity theft. Isaac didn't care much for his wife or his other youngest son. Esau also threatened to kill Jacob one day, and Jacob was ultimately run away. So, this is a pretty messed up family, I'd say. Wouldn't you agree? But here's one big and important difference between this biblical family and the modern family I previously described. You see, this modern family says, Do you see all our brokenness? Do you see all our dysfunction? Do you see all our sins? Yeah, this is who we are, and because we've embraced it, so should you. The modern family is trying to convince the world that their sins are normal, and that their sins should be accepted. The Bible will never give any stamp of approval to any of the brokenness displayed by any person or family. Now, I think if I were to give you a moment just to think about your own family, you could probably think, create a fairly long list of the things that are wrong with it, couldn't you? Of your personal family. And if you're unwilling to admit that, I think you're really just kind of an ostrich bearing your head, hoping that no one would notice. In fact, sometimes we as family members we get quite protective and quite defensive over our families, don't we? Don't you know what? Only my only only I can talk to my siblings that way. Only I you know don't ever talk to my siblings or my parents or my spouse or my children. In other words, we get very defensive, and we replace words like the sins of our family," the dysfunctions of our family as words like "quirks" or "style," don't we? You know, uh, as an Asian-American, the way we were disciplined were vastly different from the way my American friends were disciplined, the way I know, at least. They would get my friends growing up, they would get timeouts. They would get their TV privileges revoked for a whole week. They would get grounded. But when it came to me and my Asian constituents, getting grounded and timeouts would take too long for us to learn from our mistake. So our parents, they opted for the proverbial spare the rod, spoil the child, and they used a good old-fashioned butt whooping, right? But if we ever questioned them as to why we don't get grounded, because let's face it, that option would be wonderful since our entire lives were lived as if we were already grounded, so it wouldn't make much of a difference anyways. But if we questioned our parents as to why we get physically disciplined and why my friends didn't, our parents would say, because that's their style. This is our style. And I'm thinking, I really don't like our style. <laughs> whatever the sin issues are in your life, whatever the sin and dysfunctions are in your family lives, and there are, if you just think about it for a second, you know a whole list. And if you don't know, just ask your spouse. They probably know too. But I pray that as you hear from the scriptures today, that you'll be reminded that the sins of your family, while normal in a sense that all families struggle with sins, it cannot remain normal. As in, don't let your sins find acceptance in your household. Amen? Don't let it find acceptance in your household. Now turn to your neighbor and say, I'm the messed up family member. I didn't say I had both my siblings say just now. And so as we go through this passage, we'll see that Isaac's family was one messed up family. And I think if we look a little deeper, we may even see something of ourselves in here too. But in all that, I hope that we will understand how God and all his beautiful grace intends to transform us. Amen? So I have a couple points to make. Now, when I asked you all to think of the sins of your family, maybe you thought of sins like, yeah, there was adultery in my family. Maybe there was a lot of drunkenness or addiction. Perhaps there was a lot of anger and bitterness. Well, our first point isn't something so obvious because from our text today, we learned that rebellion against God can look a lot like holiness. Rebellion against God can look a lot like holiness when it's actually so far from it. Now, here's the thing. When I was growing up, I was born and raised here in Northern Virginia. I used to live in Herndon. It was a great place before all the subdivisions appeared and all that stuff. Back then, I had a backyard. A backyard that connected really to the forest, to the wilderness, where deer would roam around, where you would even see cute foxes everywhere, just hunting and eating cute bunnies. It was a magical place. Right? It was a lovely place. And right next to my house was this amazing creek, this creek that I would frequent. And I would go inside, and I would roll up my socks and my shoes. and my, well, You can't roll up your shoes, but roll up my pants, and I would catch things. I would catch salamanders. I would catch you know, crayfish frog, earthworms. And one thing that I would always find every single time I go and search would be these stones or rocks with streaks or glitters of gold, right? Obviously, we all know collecting them. And in fact, they're called what? Fool's gold. But I remember collecting them and imagining just how how rich I was. But again, all that glitter wasn't gold. Look, I think it's especially true in these religious circles that we run in. I've heard some pastors say this. All that shines brightly on Sunday doesn't necessarily prove to be pure throughout the week. Why? Because rebellion can pose as holiness, if we're not careful enough. So let's get to it. I want to use Esau as an example. Esau, he expects his father Isaac to die soon. Isaac is super old. Now, he doesn't want to upset his dying father, and he certainly doesn't want to, you know, grieve his dad at such a delicate time. So he shows his father some respect But during this sensitive time where he should be mindful of his father and repenting of his sins, because we know that Isaac is a pretty messed up guy. He's done a lot of wrong things in life. This would be a good time to be reflective and to be introspective and to especially repent. But what do you do? No. He continued on with his life of hypocrisy. Now this is how. He is pretending, get this, that the death of his father would be a grieving and mournful event in fact, It would be in such a way because it would be his religious duty to mourn over his deceased father. But this act of respect for his dad, this act of I'll be grieving for my father when, when you're gone, it's all fake. It was all fake because the death didn't come fast enough. Why? It's so that he can quickly go and murder his brother. Murder's brother. See, none of this was about honoring his dad. It's not about counting down the days and treasuring every single moment before his poor old dad dies. No, the approaching death of his father is merely a countdown to the execution of his brother. It's just a countdown. So, in a way, he's consoling himself in that he's rejoicing that the time of his brother's death is coming real soon. Everyone say that's messed up. But not only that, let's look at Rebecca. Rebecca, she's distressed over the fact that Esau had married these pagan women. In verse 46, we read that she says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. And so the thought that her other son, the one that she actually loves, Jacob might follow in his brother's footsteps, is just too much to bear. So she tells her husband, Dear old hubby, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So at first glance, when we're reading that, when we're hearing that, we're thinking, all right, one point for holiness. Rebecca's finally getting into this idea of what godliness is. She wants godly women. She should be pursuing after godly uh, daughter-in-laws. That's what she wants for the sake of her family, for the sake of her relationship, for the sake of her children, all that stuff. Right? Isn't that a good thing? Right? Well, no. And so Isaac, convinced by his wife's interest in really the future of their family, he says, fine. Send Jacob away. So he sends Jacob away to find a wife in the family of Rebecca's brother Laban. Now, here's the real reason why she said that. Rebecca's primary concern was not about finding a godly woman or wife for for her son Jacob. Her concern was to get Jacob out of town before his brother Esau would kill him. And why did Esau want to kill his brother Jacob? Because of a little while ago, there was a little plot that Rebekah deceitfully made up herself to steal Isaac's blessing or the father's blessing. So this was, in a way, just her covering up her deceit that has snowballed out of control and she's just playing it off like she's pursuing after holiness. But wait, there's more. Now let's take a look again at Esau trying to take on another wife. When Isaac sent Jacob away to Laban's house to find a wife, when Esau suddenly realized how much his father disliked the pagan Hittite women. Isn't that crazy? Esau, this moment during this passage, suddenly realized how much his father was actually against these marriages to these pagan women. These pagan women that Esau were already married to. This is crazy, because just now, Esau, who's a grown-up man, Esau, who has a dying father, who's lived a good portion of his life, is just realizing for the first time that marrying a pagan woman was not acceptable. Where has his dad been this entire time? Where has his mom been? Where has his discipleship been? No one's been training him. No one's been teaching him. No one's been guiding him. So he ends up marrying a third wife named Mahalath from his uncle's tribe, Uncle Ishmael. Now here's the thing. Listen to me, folks. We're not really clear as to what his intentions were. Maybe it was to stick it to his parents one last time. He was like, you know what? I married two women that you didn't approve of. And the fact that my blessing was stolen and robbed and you didn't give me another blessing, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and marry another one you don't like. Maybe he was sticking to his dad. I don't know. Or maybe we can give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe Esau was actually concerned and trying to give his dad one last semblance of peace and of hope by marrying someone from within the family. But here's the thing. Regardless if he was trying to offend his parents or he was trying to do something good, it just either way shows how clueless he really is. Because let's say he had every intention to do good and marry within the family. Well, whose family was he marrying into? He was marrying into the son, Ishmael, whom God had already, what, rejected. He was marrying into that family. Do you know what this whole situation is? It's the vain attempt of a man who does not know the heart of God. It is a vain attempt of a man who does not know the heart of God trying to do things he believes is righteous. Trying to do things he believes is moral. Do you see how without the righteousness of God, no matter how well-intentioned you might be, all it will do is just increase your sin and emphasize how far you really are from the heart of God. You cannot know the holy heart of God without addressing the sinful depravity of yours. You can't. And Esau, throughout this entire process, was unrepentant. Without repentance, without coming to the cross, all we're doing then is demonstrating how our rebellious hearts can so easily pose as holiness. And that's our problem, folks. That's our problem today. We're so good about pursuing after our own personal agenda and labeling as some holy affair. We're good about baptizing our behavior and thinking that the good we do outweighs the bad so therefore it's okay and the truth is we're pretty successful at pulling it off too and maybe it leaves people around us really impressed but God is not impressed he is not impressed with our hypocrisy with our fakeness people may look on the outside but the Lord he searches the heart do you know what living a life of hypocrisy does to the person sooner than later their own hypocrisy ends up deceiving themselves. You begin to buy into the lie that you're fine, that you're doing good, that you're justified. It's the whole ends, justifies, and means scenario. We buy into it. That's why knowing just truth isn't good enough because without obeying that truth, you're only deceiving yourselves, as James chapter 1, verse 22 states. The truth that you all claim to express to know you know it has not truly captivated your heart unless you obey that truth. Does it make sense? You will know if that truth has truly captivated your heart if you obey that truth. It's like when God sent his prophet Samuel to deliver a message to King Saul. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord says this: go and attack the Malachites and totally and utterly annihilate and destroy them and everything that belongs to them. do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkey. You see the Malachites they were enemies of God, and so God, he was pronouncing judgment upon them. And the time of repentance for them was over. No more mercy, no more grace. You see, for God, for the Malachites, it was judgment time. And so King Saul, he got up in arms and he did what God commanded, sort of. He went, he fought them, and he destroyed them. But when he saw all the amazing good stuff that that was around, all the good livestock, what did he do? He killed the weak ones, but he kept the good ones. Then he captured the Amalekite king. Why? To execute him in front of the people? No. No. It was to take him in as a trophy, a trophy to emphasize his military might. And so Saul, he took his spoils home even because he thought, you know what? My way is better than God's. And so when Samuel came to King Saul, even as Saul was talking about his conquest, even though he was saying, hey, look at how well I obeyed God. I destroyed that entire army. I destroyed those people. Samuel, all he could hear was the stolen sheep in the background. What's this bleeding I hear? what was Saul's response to getting caught red-handed? He goes, oh, yeah, 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 I, um, I saved the best to sacrifice to the Lord. This is Saul trying to pose his disobedience, his rebelliousness as holiness. And what does God say through Samuel? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And it was from that act of disobedience that God, he took Saul's kingdom away from him. What does God want from us today, people? What is God trying to say to you today? He does not want your success. He wants your faithfulness. He is not impressed by your holy exterior. He wants your obedience. He doesn't need all the help, all the wonderful things that you can provide for him and do for him. He wants your heart. And if we don't give him our heart in faithful obedience, then all the worship services that you sat in, all the money that you've donated, all the hours spent reading the Bible, all the prayers that you have poured out, does not mean a single thing, because to obey is better than sacrifice. And if we're not obeying the truth, then we're simply posing our rebelliousness as holiness, and God is gonna call you out on that someday, and maybe it's today. So how does the story end? It seems like this family has no hope. It seems like this family is one of those families that you would never want your daughter or your son to marry into. This is a highly dysfunctional family, a family that is just filled with sin and sin and sin. What good are they? They offer nothing to society. They're corrupt. They're deceitful. How can this dysfunctional family continue on like this? And this goes to my second and final point. In God's grace, He allows us to rest upon His promise. You know what is even more greater and more powerful than your dysfunction? God's holy goodness. He is so good. Turn to your neighbor and say, He is so good. Now, so far, we know that everyone mentioned here in the story is pretty messed up, that they're deceitful, they're sinful. But then, if you recall, in the middle of Isaac, the dad who's dying, in the middle of his sinful rebellion, his stubbornness to bless the wrong son Esau over Jacob. What does he do? He ends up blessing the younger son Jacob, remember, because he was tricked. And after realizing that he's been tricked, he refuses to take the blessing back, and his son Esau is saying, well, you only got one blessing in you? Come on! And by the way, I ended that sermon, and the way that I ended it was that Isaac finally recognized his own sins. Isaac, he finally recognized his own failings, and surrendered himself to the Lord's will in true repentance. If you recall, if you recall all the messages I've preached so far, it's quite clear what the Lord wants from us. It's always recognizing that God is God and we are not. That God is perfect and we are not. That God is holy and we are not. That God is the one who saves and we cannot. Every single moment of every single day as we reflect upon the gospel should lead us to a life of repentance. Because we realize we cannot do this on our own. Amen? So let's compare the blessing. How do we know that Isaac truly repented? I need for us to compare the blessing that he thought he was giving Esau to the blessing that he knowingly gave Jacob before he sent him away to Laban's home. So, in his blessing to Esau, remember this was Jacob in disguise, but he thought he was blessing his firstborn son, Esau. The focus was get this, on the son. Not the Lord. The focus was on the material wealth, on the earth's richness, on the great abundance of grain and new wine. Then the focus was on the promising him of power. May nations serve you. May people bow down to you. May you be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's son bow down to you. And finally, he blessed him with security. Those who bless you, may they be blessed. And those who curse you, may they be cursed. Now, this may sound fine. You're thinking, well, this sounds like it's in accordance with what God said previously to Abraham. But let's look at the blessing Isaac knowingly gave Jacob, and I think you'll see the difference here. Let me read verses 3 and 4 chapter 28 real quick. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. This here actually sounds a lot more like the promise that God made to Abraham. Let's look at what Isaac says here to Jacob. First is this. God will make you a great company or a great community of people. Yes, he's going to have a lot of descendants, They're going to number more than the stars of the heavens. Yes, there'll be a lot, a lot, a lot. But this word for company, community, is the Old Testament word for church. You see, Isaac was blessing Jacob the promise of, through you, you will have a holy nation. Through you, a true Israel. Through you, a people of God will come. The church. Then in verse 4, we read, the blessing of Abraham. This isn't some general generic statement of of blessing. This is the heart of the covenant, the promise of a holy seed, the promise of the Messiah. Isaac now is finally remembering what the covenant is all about, what God had told his father Abraham, what his father had told himself, and now what he is telling his son. That it's not just about the physical blessings, but it's about the spiritual blessing of salvation, that the Messiah will come from you. And finally Isaac promises Jacob the land of promise. He calls it the land of yours of your sojourning, as in this is the land which Abraham and Isaac had lived as strangers. This is where we had lived as pilgrims, as aliens. This is not our home. And so in the same way Jacob, you will continue to live as an alien, as a as a pilgrim just wandering around. But it's okay. Because this promise of land, this promise of inheritance, it's not just about this land. It's not just about this region. It's not just about accruing your wealth. No, you see, my son, the future blessing, the future promise is that one day God's people will inherit the whole earth, that they will inherit the whole heavens. in God's time. These are the differences between these two blessings because the first blessing he thought he was giving to Esau was done without a God-centeredness in mind. It was all about wealth. It was all about power. And folks, made for us too. Right now, we're thinking: Is my life and the way that I'm seeking God all about me? Is it all about what I want? About what I need? Is it all about my pleasures and my comfort, my ambitions? In the first blessings case, it was all about just wealth and power. It's all very worldly. It is exactly what your neighbors are thinking of. It's exactly what perhaps you are struggling with right now. Thinking about, what, how can I get my own? How can I do it for myself? How can I get that six-figure salary? How can I drive that nice, fancy car? All these things, it's just about my blessings for me. But now, Isaac's blessing after his repentance, it focused on God's promise to raise up a mighty generation. A generation that will inherit the earth, who will live, yes, as pilgrims, who will live as aliens, but they will know that the Holy See, the Messiah, will come, and he will restore it all, and he will be their salvation. Yes, there are similarities in both blessings, but Esau's blessing was done in secret. It was done in rebellion. It was done to please his own appetite. It was all that mattered, and he wasn't going to surrender to anyone, not even to God. So how could any prayer or blessing come from that kind of heart? But when Isaac repented, when he got back to the Lord, when he came back to him, everything changed. Suddenly, it was about the Abrahamic covenant. Suddenly, it became about God's plan. Suddenly, it was not about my almightiness or my power, but all about God's almightiness, about God's power. Suddenly, it became about surrendering to God's will. So what is God's will for us, people? You know, today marks a very special day for us as Shining Star members. Sixteen years ago, a small group of men and women and a handful of children, they faithfully began a journey. Through those years, there were certainly ups and downs. There were a lot of pains, a lot of joys. I remember even many, many, many years ago, earlier on, our EM was, if you could call it an EM, was really the pastor that we had at the time preaching and sitting before him was me and my sister. And that was it. That was it. So there are a lot of ups and downs, sure. A lot of difficulties, a lot of pains, but also a lot of joys. And as much as we've grown, as much as we've experienced life together, that journey is not over. That journey for us as an English ministry, Shining Star Community Church here, this body, it's not over. But with every year, even though we're journeying together, with every year that passes by, I believe the mission has gotten clearer. 16 years ago when our church began with its first Sunday, I kind of saw it like the day of Pentecost back in the biblical days. Not without the spiritual kind of whirlwind. I'm not talking about that, but because for that day, for us, we were reminded that God, he demonstrated the victory of Jesus' work by pouring out his spirit unto us. You see, it was on that day of Pentecost, which had become our mission as a church, that we carry the promise that was made to Abraham, and through his seed, a blessing will come upon the whole world. You see, God has given us a very distinct mission, to proclaim the beautiful gospel message of Jesus Christ. Because on that day, a people from every tribe and language, every people, every culture, every continent, on the islands of the sea, every race, every nationality, would hear the good news of Jesus. That God, he sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That God sent his son into the world, not to put sinners on the cross, but to save us from the cross by going up on the cross himself, Three days later, he will prove victory, victorious over death and sin, and that all, anyone here who surrenders themselves to Jesus will be saved. All here. Can you believe that? You surrender yourself. To Jesus, you will be saved, completely forgiven, adopted into his family, made co-heirs with Christ of his eternal blessing. So what's God's will for people like us who've messed up and who have come from messed up families and who will continue to mess up our families right now? Look, you and I, we can try to labor and pursue after outward religious appearance and try to make sure people think that we're looking all right. All the while, our hearts are warring against God's truth through disobedience. We can try to say, you know what, we'll be messengers of encouragement and peace to the world while we are carefully avoiding any call to radical repentance. While we avoid any call to self-denial or costly discipleship. We can't pick and choose that. What God wants from us is to pursue the gospel life. Turn to your neighbor and say this, pursue the gospel life. What does that even mean? And I end with this, guys. This means having a growing reliance upon Jesus. A growing reliance upon Jesus. A growing reliance upon his work, his death, his resurrection, so that it would protect us. Get this. When you rely more on Jesus, it will protect us from relying on ourselves. When you rely more upon the the cross, then that means it will protect us from depending on our own performances and acts of self-righteousness. It will protect you. When people say you're not good enough, or you're not pretty enough, or you're not successful enough, when you think about the cross, you're saying I am protected from the words and the twistedness of the world and what you say how I should be. No. I am who I am because of Christ. It's about finding confidence in Christ and who we are as his followers. It's about finding intimacy with Christ and knowing that only Jesus can satisfy us. And it's about finding community in Christ and that we're called to go forth and proclaim the raw truth of the gospel and live the gospel life with one another. As you center yourself upon the gospel, you'll no longer feel the need to cover your rebelliousness with fake holiness because you just won't care. Instead, you'll seek after radical repentance of such hypocrisy. Because it's through that repentance that will lead you to be able to rest in God's promise. But through that repentance, the Lord will lead you in giving you a clear heart, a clear mind, and a clear spiritual drive to do His will in obedience. Amen? Let's pray. It doesn't matter what your culture is. Because as people, we all have the culture of trying to save face. The culture of self-preservation, the culture of living defensively. We want to make sure that our reputation holds up. We want to make sure that people don't see our weaknesses. We want to make sure that people see only the good. You see, even though Facebook and Instagram and those things are recent inventions, those are things that we've been living with from day one. We always want to pose and say, this is how we really are, when in fact, it's so far from it. The ugliness that you've seen in Isaac's family here is really a reflection of the ugliness of our hearts. I'll be the first one to tell you, I have an ugly life. I've lived an ugly life. There was pretense in the way I was raised. There was pretense in the way... I viewed my family, all these things. It was just to show people, to show people that I was good enough. And what it ended up doing was it just made that shell of hypocrisy that much harder to shed. And even though I was born into the church and raised by the church and had grown up in the church, you see, it took me over 13 years to finally understand by the power of God's grace what the gospel meant. That in a way, it was okay to not be okay. And it was that day where I said, God, I can't, I can't keep up with this charade anymore. I just can't. And if people see the ugliness of my heart, then they've seen really what's true. But that ugliness, you see, friends, when you give it to the Lord, is ugliness that he has died for and that he has forgiven you of. And it is that very ugliness that he has wiped away from your life forevermore. And he has instead cloaked you with his righteousness. You see, that is is what—that is the exchange Christ gives us. What do you want? Do you want to continue living in this facade? Do you want to continue living a life of just charades? Pretending to your life group, pretending to your spouse, pretending to your children, pretending to your coworkers, pretending to your church, your body here, and saying, I'm okay, I'm fine. No, things are great. do you want to breathe for the first time do you want to truly experience freedom for the first time I am sick and tired of living a life of lies how about you I am sick and tired of living a life that's so fake it's exhausting how about you I'm not saying to normalize your sins. I'm not saying this is who I am and this is how I'll be. No. But I'm saying, have you surrendered it to Christ? To Christ? Have you given it up to him so that he could take it from you? There's only one way out. That is the Christ way. Any other way, you'll be carrying your own burden for the rest of your life. So, maybe your prayer today is simply this. If you know the Lord, it's a call for transparency, it's a call for repentance. God, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to pursue not just a life of knowledge of truth, but a life that will obey that truth. Maybe for some of you, it's an opportunity. speak truth and life into someone else or for you to be able to receive that truth from someone else whatever it may be let's take a moment and pray may the spirit lead you in your prayers let's pray